What's going on, everyone? Thank you for listening to the Self-Disruption Podcast, where we talk about lifelong learning, leadership, and innovation with the top minds in their fields today. Brought to you by SEAC, a global leader in lifelong learning and innovation. Check them out at seasiacenter.com. I've got all their details down in the show notes. I'm your host, Dana Blue, and in this episode, I sit down with William Malik, a design thinking and innovation expert. William is a leader in the space of corporate innovation here in Asia. He draws on his years of entrepreneurial experience to help companies disrupt themselves from within. William and I break down exactly what design thinking is and isn't, how it helps companies solve problems, and what the common barriers to disruption are at that corporate level. So sit back, relax, and let's get right into it. William, thank you for being here, taking the time to come down to the studio. You are essentially an innovation design thinking expert. I really want to talk today about what is design thinking because I know not everyone fully understands the concept with the depth that you possess. So while you're here, I just want to take the opportunity to dive into that. Okay, great. So tell me right off the bat, what is design thinking? Give me the definition. So in simple form, it's being centered on the person, the end user, the customer that you're trying to serve. Okay. Design thinking is a way to create value for that person. In, in a business context, what does that mean? So if I'm serving a product or building a product mm. in the marketplace, it means that I will have taken the opportunity to find out exactly what the person's needs are, what their pain points are, what issues do they have in their life so that the product I deliver them adds value. It creates value for them, not for you. It's the value is created in the eyes of the customer. So the end user. End user. Customer. Et cetera. And, but remember the, the, the fine element of design thinking, it can be used for any problem. Okay. It doesn't have to be related to products and services, which is a huge shift for some people because it was born in the product world. Yeah, but it's morphed now to use as a tool to solving very specific problems in businesses, teams, organizations. Now that that's interesting because I'd always thought of it as a, as a product side type of tool, and I've actually used it in some of my previous businesses for the product design. I never even thought about it as an organizational tool. But let's go into that a bit. So how how does that work? How do you take a product methodology and apply it to organizational? issues. Right. So in design thinking, there's a term that's used called wicked problems. Mm. So the basic mindset is that if you have a wicked problem, it's complex, multiple stakeholders, that design thinking is actually an appropriate tool to help a team dissect, understand what are the issues, where are the challenges, what are the pain points of all the stakeholders, whatever problem or challenge is at hand, mm. And by simply using the same tools and techniques that are used in product design are used around a problem set can get you a deeper, more meaningful, well thought out uh, uh, solution mm -hmm. and ideas in order for you to go execute. So it's a reapplication of same tools and process, but in a different context. Now, we talked about you're serving the person, right? That's the fundamental idea of it. So you're diving in and when I've used it on the product side you talk to potential customers you have you get feedback with the problem side and the way you described a wicked problem it sounds like 
th there's all these different stakeholders in an organization you can affect multiple silos and verticals how do you start to look at who you're serving there with with design thinking yeah, and organizational that, sense yeah it's a great question so the the challenge in where that's complex is you have to map out who those stakeholders are who mm. the end users are who are you serving in your value chain yeah so the big buzz now in business is, oh, we're going to build platforms and uh, business model ecosystems. Mm. It's easy to say, and then at the end of the day, hard to do. You have mm -hmm. to design, human-centric design. You have to figure out all those stakeholders, bring back those needs, because they're all going to be different in some cases, mm. and especially in an organization. Cross-functional areas, they all, the HR has different needs and finance, et cetera. But you have to be able to pull out and extract what is it that your opportunity or the problem you're trying to solve, how does it build and create value for them? Mm. And this way you then have to synthesize multiple stakeholders. And this is where the design thinking is really a, a, a team-based sport. You mm. could argue 20 years ago to a certain degree you could get you know a, a, a single entrepreneur using the process to go build cool stuff. Mm. But in the case now where it's broadened, you know, like in organizational problems, you have to be able to synthesize multiple views mm. to build a system that, in fact, can deliver the value to multiple end users, not just one. Mm. Now, and from what you said, like, about 20 years ago, you could argue that it was like one entrepreneur. In my experience as an entrepreneur, going back 20 years, you know, I... I've, I think the idea of a solopreneur, the single entrepreneur, is a myth. I've never seen it be ultimately successful at scale with that hockey stick type growth of a, of a business. I know you've got an entrepreneurial background as well, going back perhaps a few years more than me, you know, being kind. Uh, what do you think? Do you think that's a myth, the solopreneur? Do you so think it takes a team? Uh, you know, in it, so in established businesses yeah. where the – the skill set of entrepreneurial thinking hasn't been built. Mm -hmm. The notion of innovation really becomes a team-based sport. Mm. There, it's it becomes you can get more diverse creativity to come up with a brilliant idea when you've been socialized into an organization, as opposed to I'm a single entrepreneur and I'm working from my garage mm. and I might have one best friend I can bounce ideas off, but I'm brilliant at creating you know unique ideas. Mm. So I think in the organizational context, businesses, and, and I, I'm talking even small businesses, mm. and you're working in there, that it design thinking is a team-based sport. Mm. The sport of creating novel, unique ideas, solutions to things. And it's the team that gets this. And in a lot of cases that I've seen is that you know, uh, executives don't really understand this. Mm. Uh, they think the process is where the creativity comes from, and it's embedded in the process. Well, the process enables you, it's the team that creates the insight, and that always isn't straightforward. Do you see the design thinking methodology as sort of a tool to increase creativity long-term when teams start to get used to the idea of what it does, or is it a one-time thing? No, I, so once you start to use the tools and uh, from empathizing to mm. the ideation and prototyping your ideas so that it's in physical form to share with somebody, mm. once you understand the behavior and the mindset that goes with design thinking, you almost go, gosh, that's really 
too good. That's the way we should do everything when we have a human-centered issue or a, a customer or a stakeholder that we need to deal with. Just being able to uh, talk to somebody in a new way mm. and forget your biases and, and get out of your need to, you know, loving your solution to loving the problem and the person's problem more than what you think the solution is, is, is a shift. And once you really get that, it becomes kind of a, a lifelong journey. Mm. You know, that, that's actually a big issue from a business perspective and entrepreneur perspective as well. I've been in situations where I was too attached to my idea, my solution. And as cool as I thought it was, as innovative as it was, it didn't help the customer. And that's been the downfall of several of my businesses, that I didn't understand that, that takeaway. When I used design thinking in my, my human analytics company, and we were looking at how they actually want to engage with the data, I, I was blown away by the difference in what they wanted and what I thought was amazing. How often do you see when you're going out and doing this with companies that they say, you know, no, we, we know what's best for the customer, and th they push back in that regard? Well, it varies dramatically. Um, so on one end, you can have companies that are actually in trouble financially, and uh, they're, they have a lot of pain, mm. and that they have to do something radically different fast. They tend to be more open to, huh, <laughs> my to ideas <laughs> have not worked, so yeah. I need to try something different to change the fundamental performance of, of the organization. So in that context, they're more open. Mm. It becomes harder when an organization or executives of a company who have been fairly successful, growth is still happening, and their mental models about how they see success are very ingrained. And to say, oh, I, I'm going to challenge my idea about m how I see success becomes extremely hard. Mm. So it's, it becomes a paradox. And this has been studied, by the way. This is uh, Clayton Christensen wrote this in his book years ago called The Innovator's Dilemma, that your, your Great book. recent success and it, it, your past success mm. is, is not a leading indicator of whether or not you can actually get through another wave of growth and, and, and opportunity in your company. Yeah. I think, I know, like I said, I pushed back on it, and I was shocked the first time I used design thinking that, it's like, whoa, what I think is incredible is, is not what the customer wants. And I, I like your, your point that if a company's in trouble, if you're losing money, you're, you're much more open to the idea. And the reason I was open to the idea was because my previous company didn't do well. We didn't get out the gate. Our, we didn't get the traction we wanted, and all that came down to, you know, we didn't apply some empathy, we didn't, you know, ideate, we didn't iterate, and we just kind of went forward with what we thought was an amazing idea with blinders on. You know, with the companies that are still doing good, how do you get them to see that you got to break those blinders off, you got to move forward? So, it, it, first of all, I think that there's a paradox mm. of thinking, and it really is a paradox that challenges us to look at how do we allow ourselves to be open to feedback mm. and using the feedback to our advantage to create uh, better and bigger and different solutions. The paradox is that a, a solid, especially a serial entrepreneur, mm. they're wired to almost overconfident, positive, this is going to work. I've been there. <laughs> and 
you, it's it's kind of funny. You you need that. Mm. You actually have to have somebody on the team that has the forward drive and passion of a world that we've never gone to, and have that uh, that that conviction mm. that th somehow this thing is going to work. Uh, because without that, uh, you really can get scattered. You you can really go off in different directions that could be you know fracture any any opportunity. But at the same time that same mindset mm. needs the balance. It needs to go, okay, I'm pretty sure about this. And let me allow myself with my team to explore what different options are there. You know, I was actually at one point in my career, I was brought into a major technology company mm. with the expressed objective of the five-year strategic plan was to destroy the current business model. Sounds like a fun job. And they were a highly successful company. But they knew enough with the rate of change, especially with the cloud occurring at the time. This is circa 2004. Mm. Right that cost. And, and the cloud wasn't even called the cloud at this point. It was called dirt, uh, virtual data centers. Like and everybody was kind of like, computing, uh, right? yeah, what, what, you know, what is Amazon doing? And is this really going to have an impact and everything? And uh, the company was significantly concerned enough to see that if they didn't let go of their notion of what their current business model was and, uh, uh, and and allow outside influences to change it, they could potentially be you know caught mm. in a in a major disruption. And the fact was, they saw it. They they were able to break out and let go of their business model to understand the product innovations they were going to have to produce in order to be synergistic mm. with the cloud and going to large data center environments as opposed to you know local remote on-site you know data centers and data platforms inside companies. What was it that internally that allowed them to see that? Because a lot of times, especially back in the early 2000s, I, I was working with a very big telecom, you know, and you see it, that they don't have the ability to see change coming or surrounding <coughs> them essentially and making them obsolete. So what was the internal mechanism that allowed them to see this change well coming. in this case it's uh, again a good a great question so in this case they're sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley mm. and they could see literally all of the startups everyone around all, them. all everybody around them you know <coughs> it's like you know who's who's coming after us mm. so everyone this, this, yeah so this, so this paranoia right yeah. of huh are they going to really is this is this idea and this technology going to be a game changer and should we buy it should we partner with it and so forth and I think because of the context they were in mm. and kind of the fishbowl environment where you can see a lot in mm. Silicon Valley that the, again, the, 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 <laughs> the, the paranoia was so significant that it forced them to really think differently about what model, what business model, what innovations they're going to have to do to their business model to be able to maintain viability, mm. and that's their job. You know, the executive, you have to be able to do that if you're a, a large company and s shareholders and so forth. Yeah, it's very true, and you know, it's good that they were able to see that. Of course, the environment you're in plays a big role. You know, and I think, you know, like we talk about company culture a lot, if you're in the Valley, there's this huge culture of competition as well, corporate-wise, and if they're coming for you, they're coming for you. You talked about that balance. Like you said, you know, companies a lot of times need that driven individual, the, the entrepreneur who says, I'm right, this is the vision, we go for it. They need that counterpoint sometimes who, who challenges them. I see this in uh, some of the more successful startups that I've worked with. One of the ones I can think of here in Thailand, 
the CEOs, my friend Troy, very visionary, you know, very much focused on what he wants to create. And his COO, this guy Touch, is his counterpoint, his, his kind of uh, guy on the shoulder challenging everything that, that he puts out there. And that relationship, in my opinion, is what allows them to be very successful, is that they have a very open discourse with each other. Mm-hmm. And But I think at an entrepreneurial level, that can be a little bit easier to create. When you look at a corporate level, sometimes that's not quite the case. A lot of CEOs don't have the bandwidth to allow that. Do you think that hampers the ability to innovate and to pull on a methodology like design thinking for for organizational issues? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, and you add cultural context, like in an Asian context where harmony Mm. of the team is valued more than individual success. Okay, so very different from a a, a Western perspective. So if you add that into there, the the notion is, well, we're not going to disagree. We're going to move towards harmonization of our idea, Mm. which is – essentially confirmation bias at a certain level. Yeah, You're, it is confirmation bias. The team bias, and how it's structured and the hierarchy, and then it's the boss's idea that's the one that gets the, the momentum, and mm. it's n- not necessarily the right one because mm. the boss is not talking with the customer, if you, if you would, in, in, in a simple way. But the, the research has been done fairly significantly on this. I th- th- I, some at Harvard and other uh, places where the breakthrough teams, the teams that actually create the most – uh, uh, innovations or creativity, mm. it's been well researched that those teams have the highest degree of disagreement, that, that they allow the, uh, the debate, the, mm. uh, the, the constructive dialogue around two opposing ideas, uh, and those teams out of that form a creative friction that allows them to explore other things they would have never thought about without that disagreement. And this has been shown over and over. So the question is, how does an organization recreate that? And in my mind, this is where design thinking comes in because it's got discipline in it. It knows this. It th- and the, the tools and the processes, if facilitated correctly, build that creative dialogue, that creative friction which is positive, it's, yeah. it, you know, and, and, and in Thailand, it, you, you have to learn that um, conflict is not disrespect. Mm. Conflict is a means to create a, an explosion of ideas and, and, and see at the edges of our thinking how we might have a new idea out of two opposing ideas that might emerge. I, I'm all for that particular methodology. I, I love the idea of being challenged and being able to push back and, and growing from that and causing that friction. But how do you teach that when it's not native to the culture of the company or even the country that you're working in? Mm-hmm. So it's teaching it, but also demonstrating it. So they have to be able to, they won't believe you unless they can see it. So I'm a big proponent of process. Mm. So if everybody understands the rules of engagement and they've agreed to the rules of engagement around a process, Mm-hmm. then the process can be the mitigating factor for the cultural biases that come in. So, for example, if you have a, a session of creating ideas and there's a rule that says you cannot say no and you cannot say but, so you're forced to be adding ideas. So, yes, and. I'm going to mm-hmm. add an idea to your idea. Those two words together right there, mm-hmm. replacing but with and after yes, life-changing. From a business perspective. Yeah, and, and when you're in a creative environment yeah. and everybody knows that the ground rules, you can have your boss in the room 
and still allow for the disagreement to happen, and you're not worried about losing face or mm -hmm. in harmony and, th and so forth. Mm -hmm. So again, the process becomes the tool to allow the culture to still be the culture that th the deeply embedded values that people believe in, but the process becomes the mitigating factor, and it's okay because everybody's agreed to the ground rules of engagement in, in, the, in the process. And that process is, is generally pretty, pretty easy to get buy-in from at the corporate level? Well, sure, but at, so for leaders, they mm -hmm. have to understand this, and they have to understand the, the why. And the why is if you're stuck mm. and your growth is not happening, you need new ideas for new products and services, you, you have to expand your current reality because if you don't change what you're doing, as Einstein said, you know, repeating the same thing okay. is nothing less than insanity. So uh, the, the question becomes, what process do I use to allow more open creative dialogue to occur? Mm. Uh, and I submit it needs to be system-wide. If it's a system problem of your organization not growing, it can't be just one or two people or a small team of people that are called the, you know, the innovators. Mm. It, you'll, you'll, it, it'll be very difficult. That's a corporate cultural shift, though. And you're talking about a huge change in culture. If you want a culture of innovation, especially, at, say, a company that's 100 years old, has been doing business the same way for 100 of those 100 years, is design thinking capable of facilitating that type of cultural shift? It, it could be, and there's a lot of what-ifs, you know, yeah. it, and, it, and it depends on many factors. <coughs> so one factor is the top leadership. Are they willing to allow for uh, a different mindset in their businesses where before they might have run the business with far more structure? Mm -hmm. And control. And I don't use that negatively. I use that positively because yeah. you know operational excellence requires execution of task to a very specific you know uh, parameter of performance and so forth. And, mm -hmm. and that, that mindset is critical to that. But when you've got to do something different outside of the norm, you must allow people to act differently in doing this. But this is why, by the way, you look at all the the successful companies that have realized that the current culture was so overwhelmingly powerful that they did not allow any innovation to even start inside the core business. Uh, the HP uh, uh, printer mm. is an example of that. HP was a measurement company at the time, and they, they, they had this invention, and they're like, how do we get this to market? And there was enough insight and self-awareness at the top of the organization. They said, you know, this isn't going to survive inside our current business model. Let it start on its own outside. And that's exactly what they did, and it exploded. It took off. Mm. But it had its own culture, its own model, its own strategy because there was enough self-awareness. So it really depends. Yeah. It really depends. And there are there are as many case studies of success done internally in companies as well. So this is why there's no real science or right answer to this because it is very dependent upon the, the, the leadership at the time. Mm. It's very fluid, right? <coughs> it, it, it requires the buy-in I, I guess there are also there are probably times where it, it's just the wrong time from a corporate perspective to implement innovation it just doesn't take have you ever seen that uh well as they say timing is everything <laughs> yeah. is everything if yeah. you know the timing uh you're there the the wrong idea or the right idea at the wrong time yeah, yeah it's not a good thing and so it, it it'll be harder to influence getting that idea through if mm -hmm. the timing is off. So this is why I think around design thinking, 
uh, and one of the things we're learning to support design thinking is you really, really need to understand the context mm. of those ideas. But this is why you do empathy interviews. You go out to find out, is the timing right to shift this product design to something different mm -hmm. given what's happened in the marketplace? So you're using the process to feel whether or not is the timing right, yes or no? Is the customer ready? If not, what do we need to do to get them ready? And these, these kind of things begin to you know, take place in the, in the thinking. That's, that's kind of an interesting rabbit hole to go down about is the customer ready and then what do we do to get them ready? Right? Because <coughs> it, could, it could be any number of things, especially if we're talking about design thinking at an organizational problem level, not necessarily a not necessarily a product level. And I, I know product, everyone thinks product sexy, you know, it's the hot thing, but organizational issues are much more complicated, much more challenging and interesting to deal with. But, you know, wh where do you think the threshold has to be to say, okay, we need to do some, some groundwork? And usually what, what are some of the things that you think companies need to start to implement before they even think about bringing design thinking in as a management methodology or as a cultural methodology? Well, uh, so groundwork they could be doing is literally reading the literature yeah. on and the research that's been happening. So we have now about 20 years or so since it really started happening, kind of the, uh, the originator, uh, you know, the, the thought of design thinking going back to Dave Kelly at Stanford around, you know, late 90s, mm. 2000, uh, born through the visual thinking class in the mechanical engineering department, the the research time now that has passed for companies to actually go, yeah, we did this and here's what happened, here's what didn't work, and by the way, here are case studies that have applied it. Just understanding the different contexts and adaptations of design thinking is a great start. And reading, looking at case studies, looking at you know uh, documentaries. So there's movies out now. You can go watch documentaries on design thinking, oh, and, really? and, and, and and in all different facets. You know, so it's fascinating. So it's a Netflix and chill for this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Now, so design thinking is not a static thing. It's very dynamic. Then. Well, let's put it this way. I think the principles of it are pretty solid. Mm. Uh, the the adaptation of the tools and the process is where all the creative opportunity comes. So there's a lot of derivative uh, techniques, if you would, mm. that have emerged now in the last 10, 15 years that have added to the depth of design thinking. So you know, one example is jobs to be done. Mm. So this was a, a concept that was born out of, okay, so I, I have to interview a customer, I gotta find out their needs, well, okay, give me more structure then about what do I really need to get to at the end of the day. And if you understand jobs to be done, mm. and you can map that, you have much better visibility when you do your creative work by having these kind of things. So there's a lot of dynamic element in mm. the adaptation of the tools in and around you know, the whole process. Sounds a lot, like jobs <laughs> to be done reminds me of uh, agile development uh, methodologies. So for uh, software dev people out there, or people with a software background, Agile is a big uh, methodology there, and jobs to be done is one of the things that I, re I recall from that, you know, going through that daily structure. I don't know if it came from design thinking or design thinking maybe got it from that, but interesting overlap. Yeah, I mean, Agile has a component piece in there that says, hey, uh, get close to your customer, talk yeah. to them, get the user requirements, and iterate. You know, scope is an evolution in Agile, but go fast and iterate, you know, and prototype with the customer. So it, I think it, 
it has an application in there at the same time. Agile kind of emerged around 2001 at the same time, you know, mm. design thinking started to get going, but it was in a technology mm. area. It was very, you know, tech driven, you yeah. know, how do we get a user still interface? Is, yeah. yeah, and it's it's still there, so yeah. Now, one of the things that, that you said <laughs> earlier, and I think we can, I, I kind of want to wrap up with this, because I know you've got a hard stop. You, we were talking about the feedback and creating the friction. And one of the things in, uh, in design thinking is ideation, iteration, right? And I've <coughs> always found as an entrepreneur that feedback iteration loop is really important to drive your business forward. You know, what, what role does that play in design thinking? From, not from a product perspective, but a problem perspective. You know, the friction, feedback, iteration, ideation. What, what does that loop look like from a, a organizational standpoint, right. like organizational issue? Well, I call it the moment of truth. So you've, you've worked with your team, you've ideated your opportunity or solution, and now you need to go test it. Mm. And it's in the testing phase where the moment of truth becomes real and you get feedback. The iteration is, what did I learn? So an iteration occurs because you have had a learning moment. The moment of truth is sad, uh-oh, we need, you know, three more things for the customer or the end user to be satisfied that we have a solution that's workable for them. So when you think of feedback and iteration, it is the learning moment. And if you don't do that, you can do all the other things in front of, of design thinking, and you're probably not going to be successful. Because the notion is, let's not build something until we've tested it and learn from it in a fast, you know, uh, cost-effective way in order to finalize what we think we really need to build and take to market or use as a solution. So this uh, feedback iterate is a critical element of what I call the learning culture. Mm. And now everybody talks about lifelong learning. Well, an organization's core learning opportunities are those moments where you really test your ideas, your assumptions, you get feedback, and then you change. And if you're not willing to change, then you, you accept the consequences of what investments you put into what you're doing might be much more risky downstream. Now you say moment of truth. I mean, there's not just one moment <coughs> of truth in, in any given project. There could be dozens, right? Oh, <laughs> multiple. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, the, you know, the, it's, that's why the... In, 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 in design thinking and using it into scoping out a strategy, for example, mm. it's very effective because what you're trying to do is to bring the nonlinear, chaotic uncertainties mm -hmm. to a much more reasonable level of, if you would, a bandwidth of probability that you think that the organization can handle. In other words, my risk appetite, right? You, and using design thinking, you can actually take it and apply it to strategies, which is actually what I did, you know, uh, and, and wrote about this in my book. You, you, you use it to de-risk the scope of an uncertain environment. Mm -hmm. And you do that before you start resourcing a very large part of your organization to start going doing something new or different for, for growth. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time, William, to come in and talk about design thinking. I'm looking forward to getting you back on the show again, talk about even more in-depth stuff about design thinking. Great. Would love to come back. Yeah. Thanks Have so much. Have a great day. All right. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Self-Disruption Podcast, brought to you by SEAC. To find amazing resources on lifelong learning, 
leadership and innovation, you can check them out at seasiacenter.com as well as their links in the show notes. And for more great conversations like this one, you can find our archive at selfdisruptionpodcast.com.